Hi, and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology. My name is Priya, and today we're discussing a paper on the cardiovascular and renal burdens of pre-diabetes in the USA. We're joined by one of the authors of the paper, Dr. Muhammad Ali. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to publish our work, and uh, thanks for giving us the opportunity to contextualize it uh, in this podcast. Um, so to begin, just to give our listeners some background, please could you tell us about the controversy around the definition of pre-diabetes and why some people are not convinced that this is a useful label? Yeah, thanks for the question. So there are three sort of broad but interlinked debates that are going on in diabetes worldwide. The first is around the area of thresholds for uh, diagnosing diabetes and prediabetes. Uh, and so as you, as you will well know, glucose is really the measure that we use to identify diabetes, but it's a continuous measure and it's subject to wide day-to-day -day variation, uh, both within people and across people. And over the years, there have been a number of changes in the diagnostic criteria for identifying diabetes and prediabetes. And what that's meant is that it's led to an expansion in the absolute number of people that we say have diabetes or prediabetes. And over the past few years, there's been a lot more debate um, from certain experts arguing that for prediabetes at least, that we might be medicalizing uh, this condition, especially since it's what we would consider a precursor phase of diabetes and that making it a disease really medicalizes people. The second is that you know, within, within that um, category of prediabetes, classically the value in identifying prediabetes is that those people are said to progress much faster to getting diabetes, almost 5 to 12 times faster than the general population. And as we've seen in large prevention trials, intervening in this group may be particularly fruitful. And so with the lower thresholds, uh, these experts have argued that not all people with prediabetes will actually progress to getting diabetes. In other words, by lowering the thresholds, we might be identifying healthier people who then won't progress as fast. And so there's little value in screening and treating them. And then the third sort of interlinked issue in, in this whole debate is what is the most optimal way to bend the curve of growth in diabetes worldwide? And some people argue that you know, this high-risk approach, which is what we've been talking about, identifying people with prediabetes, getting them into prevention programs to change their lifestyle, is not as, as um, valuable at a population level than thinking about the upstream determinants of, of diabetes. And these experts have argued that if we were to have broader policy ideas, like, for example, soda taxes or built environment changes, we might be doing more to bend that curve and shift the mean of the population than, than applying these sort of screen and treat approaches. So those are sort of the three big interlinked controversies around prediabetes. And in your new study, you examined the cardiovascular and renal burden associated with prediabetes using data from the N. Haynes study in the USA. Could you tell us why you wanted to look at this question and why these data were useful? Yeah, so in the context of those controversies, we, we sort of said, okay, let's take away the issue of glucose and take away the issue of prediabetes progressing to diabetes 
and let's focus instead on the prevalence and control of cardiovascular and renal risk factors. And the reason we did that is that we know that these are particularly important in the progression to macrovascular diseases like heart disease, strokes. Um, and then in the case of hypertension, they're also important in terms of the progression uh, of people to getting microvascular complications like retinopathy, like kidney disease. Uh, and through a vast amount of studies, including the UK PDS, uh, many large other trials and many meta-analyses that have followed, we know that control of hypertension, control of uh, hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol levels uh, is definitively beneficial in slowing down the progression to these awful disabling diseases. So what we did was we said we took nationally representative data from the NHANES surveys, which essentially goes out and surveys thousands of people in the United States in two-year cycles um, and collects objectively measured risk factors and data on the treatments that people are taking. And it's collected in cycles in the same standardized fashion. So we were able to go back to the 1988 to 1994 surveys and use those with contiguous surveys that have been done since 1999 all the way through to 2014 to look at what has been happening over time. And due to concerns about the, the low thresholds, the, the definitions being too low for, for prediabetes, if you will, we used a variety of more sensitive and more specific definitions to define prediabetes. And then since we had the opportunity to see what was happening in the prediabetes population, we wanted a decent reference group. So we actually compared how the other groups, i.e. those with diagnosed diabetes, those who have diabetes level glucoses but don't know it, so the undiagnosed group, and then those people who are sort of normal glycemia, in other words, they have no known diabetes, no prediabetes level blood sugars, um, how they were doing compared to the people with prediabetes so that we had a good reference point. And so that was, that was our main question is, over time, comparing all these groups and using multiple definitions of prediabetes, how prevalent are cardiovascular and renal risk factors? How well are they controlled? And what is the prevalence of cardiovascular and renal um, dysfunction and damage in these groups over time? And what did your results show? So over the past 20 to 30 years, essentially our, our results were showing that the U.S. population on average has become more educated, more diverse, but also more obese. Uh, mean BMI units have gone up a great amount. And that the only group not growing uh, in terms of its proportion is the group with normal glucose levels. In other words, there's been an expansion in the proportion of the population that has prediabetes, an expansion in the proportion of the population that has undiagnosed and diagnosed diabetes. Within people with prediabetes, we noticed very high proportions of people, no matter which definition of prediabetes you use, have hypertension and hyperlipidemia of some sort. Uh, we noted almost 37% of people in the most recent surveys had high blood pressure, and over 50%, or one in two, had some form of high cholesterol. And alarmingly, already something like 11%, an estimated 11%, 
have some form of kidney dysfunction, 4% had a previous heart attack, 2.5% reported a previous stroke, and the average 10-year risk of having a heart attack in the prediabetes population was 5 to 7%. And what was particularly important, given the controversies I described earlier, was that the prevalence of all these risk factors and all these comorbidities and, and renal disease and cardiovascular disease comorbidities were extremely stable and not sensitive to differences in the definitions of prediabetes. How would you say your results fitted into the debate about the usefulness, or otherwise, of the pre-diabetes label? So our results can't address the question of progression of glucose levels to diabetes. Uh, that would really be the purview of prospective studies. But our study was able to address the issue of definitions. Um, and what we found really was that using nationally representative data, a substantial number of people in this country have prediabetes, no matter which definition you use. There is wide variation in the absolute numbers, ranging from 20 million people if you use the most specific definition to almost 80 million people if you use the most sensitive definitions. But there is, there is a substantial number of people that are affected. Furthermore, the number of people has actually grown over time, and the prevalence has also grown over time. And then with that, a very substantial portion of them have cardiovascular and renal risk factors and even disease. And more importantly, as I mentioned, the prevalence of those cardiovascular and renal diseases was extremely stable and not sensitive to the differences in definition. So when we think about medicalizing this precursor phase, what we're saying is that regardless of the fact of whether their glucose progresses or not, this is a population at high risk for the most fatal and disabling diseases of our time. And I should say, the first-line intervention for all these people remains lifestyle. So while, we, you know, while it, it may be concerning that these are medicalizing these people, really a number of trials have shown that lifestyle modification is associated not only with weight reduction, but also glucose, blood pressure, and cholesterol reductions, and lowers a number of different complications that impact the quality of life of these people. So if anything, the identification of people with prediabetes may be very important to uh, getting them engaged in lifestyle and improving their life in, in a number of ways. The third big finding I would say that you know, speaks to the, the debate is that the comparison with the diagnosed diabetes group is particularly important for two reasons. First, the prevalence of all these comorbidities was much higher, almost double in the group with diagnosed diabetes, which to me signals that identifying them in prediabetes phase may be an opportunity to try, to try and rein in the progression um, through detecting people earlier in prediabetes phases. Second, over time, our data showed that people with diagnosed diabetes were much more likely to be treated for their comorbidities, and as a result, they experienced greater reductions in blood pressure and cholesterol over time greater reductions in 10-year cardiovascular event risk, and greater reductions in proteinuria. Um, and this was not the case for people with undiagnosed diabetes, which to me, and to our team at least, signals that detection itself and the guidelines that go associated with that in terms of 
how you comprehensively treat people may have had an impact uh, on these people in the past two to three decades of lowering their overall cardiovascular risk. And by extension, this might be a great lesson for us in prediabetes is get in there, identify those people, treat their comorbidities. And I think that leads us nicely into our final question, which is, what would you say are the biggest implications of your findings, particularly in the context of the U.S. health system? Yeah, so this this is a great question and reminds me actually of a short story I read almost 20 years ago now. Um, but the abbreviated, abbreviated version goes something like this, um, that there was a, a chap walking along the beach and saw a young person picking up starfish that had been stranded on the beach after the tide had receded. And he picked up one, and each one by one, he was throwing them back into the, into the water to prevent them from dying. And the observer who's walking along came closer and said, don't you realize that there are miles and miles of beach and literally hundreds of thousands